0: What Ernest had on board that boat for armament was a Thompson submachine gun, which is a rather lethal weapon. But when matched up against a 88-millimeter deck gun on a German sub that fires 15 to 18 rounds per minute, I mean... <laughs>
1: Hi everyone and welcome to the
0: Power and Motor Yacht Podcast, your birth for the best stories in boating. Each week, my colleagues and I will bring you everything from salty stories to thought-provoking trend discussions, as well as interviews with the most interesting characters to ply the sea. Whether you're listening from the boatyard, your slip, or hopefully well underway, we're glad to have you aboard.
1: Just before it was dark, as they passed a great island of sargasso weed that heaved and swung in the light sea as though the ocean were making love with something under a yellow blanket, his small line was taken by a dolphin. He saw it first when it jumped in the air, true gold in the last of the sun, and bending and flapping wildly. Hi, I'm Charlie Levine, executive editor of Power Motor Yacht, and you're listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. Those were the words of none other than Ernest Hemingway, who's the subject of our talk today. And to help us get into it, I'm joined by the one and only Captain Bill Pike. Bill, how's it going?
0: Pretty good, Charlie. How How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. So here we are talking about Papa. It seems like very good timing. You know, that PBS documentary by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick just aired, and I can't think of any other person in the literary world or boating world who really is as well known as as Hemingway. And did you catch the documentary, Bill? What'd you think?
0: I uh, watched all three segments, Charlie. I found it a lot of it I knew, but some of it they had new stuff, uh, particularly from his childhood that I hadn't uh, that I didn't know about. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, they definitely had lots of facts, almost, I feel like I know too much now in some ways, because uh, there was some darkness in there. But, you know, do you think his writing still holds up?
0: I think the short stories in a book called In Our Time were groundbreaking. Uh, And I think many writers even today are influenced uh, by uh, the stories and particularly the dialogue. One of my favorite Hemingway short stories is a thing called a clean well-lighted place now on the one hand it uh, I don't think the uh, philosopher uh, writer John Paul Sartre who was a kind of a gloomy Gus let's face it I don't think he I don't think Sartre could have come up with a grimmer tale on a bad day but on the other hand the uh Hemingway uses dialogue. i mean there's just there's almost i don't know if there's a whole page of dialogue, but pretty close to it and he tells this this story using this dialogue that is not quite the way people speak, but it's it is in a sense when you get through reading that story and the the last few paragraphs are extremely blasphemous i'd never read anything like it in any literature ever before it's flat out blasphemy and he tells an entire it's almost like he puts a novel into a couple of pages and it's uh, it's it's very impressive it's kind of like you get done reading it and it's like how did the man do that
1: yeah he his imagery is truly astounding and simple words you know a mix of short and long sentences you know great rhythm one of his early stories that influenced me was the big two-hearted river yeah it was one mm-hmm. of those Nick Adams stories Nick Adams was one of his early characters and and in the documentary they talk about how Hemingway's father got him into fly fishing and hunting in the outdoors at a young age and In that story, it's about a soldier returning from war and goes back to this town, I guess as some sort of therapy. And he finds the whole town's burned down and then he gets to fly fishing. And I don't remember there being much of a plot other than him just chasing fish in this river, but it's quite beautiful. And, you know, for me, it was those stories of the outdoors that I really identified with and fell in love with. I was an English major in college and I actually, my senior year had to do, they called it this capstone experience thing. And it was kind of like a thesis and you had to write a long paper and then present it to all the English department head folks. And mine was about naturalism and I wrote about Hemingway and a lot of Jack London, you know, those stories. And so, I did always love that, and I think Hemingway's love of boats and fishing is really what I tend to gravitate towards, not so much as his death wish and all this other craziness right. Right. Um, What about you did you do you read a lot of his stuff about boats? I mean, obviously, being a boating writer for all these years and your love of boats, have you read much about his boat and that kind of stuff
0: well i i maintain and I'm not the only one there are other people who have said the same thing uh, before me but it's uh, his boat his 38 foot wheeler which was a basically a production production type boat wasn't a custom boat at all that boat is probably the most famous sport fishing boat of all time it's funny I went I went to Cuba back in um, 1992 and back then the Cuba was, the Cuban people were basically starving. Castro was still in power and, and you know, it was pretty obviously we were traipsing around a police state. And um, by hook or crook, let's say, we had an opportunity to visit Hemingway's house, the Finca uh, Vajia, uh, out near uh, a little place called Coimar. And we went out there and, uh, you know, we looked at the house's, just a beautiful, beautiful house, you know, very lush uh, foliage around it, etc. And one of our communist minders said, uh, you want to go inside? And we said, well, of course. Uh, and there was a photographer with me. We went in and what was remarkable is that I think Hemingway and his wife, his fourth wife, Mary, left that place in July of 1960. And it was almost like you'd walked in about an hour later. The, yeah. There were still wow. dishes in the sink. There were glasses sitting around here and there with something in them, and uh, there were marine magazines. Uh, there How used cool. to be this. <laughs> there used to be this old this magazine called Motor Boating and Sailing. Sure. Another, another magazine uh, called Boating. Uh, I don't think uh, powered motor yacht was around for <laughs> Ernest. read but it was obvious that he read all you know he read the marine magazines and it was uh it was it was very cool Charlie to to see that and just to you know it was kind of eerie or almost ghostly too just walking around uh in there and um at one point we walked out onto uh like a as I recall it some kind of a veranda or maybe um, out near the, he had a swimming pool, tennis court, etc., and, uh, looked down, uh, beyond the, uh, pool. And there was this kind of hulk wrapped up in canvas and old canvas, like beat canvas and rope, big, thick, uh, sisal cordage. And it looked like it had been sitting there for quite some while. And I said to the minder, uh, what's that? He said, oh, that's uh, Senor Hemingway, it's his boat. And I said, well, really, can we look at that? And he said, no, it is in uh, termites and this is oh, bad, sad. bad repair. You know, and it was tragic in that uh, when when they moved to Ketchum, Idaho, he had to leave his boat. He had to leave that house, which was spectacular. And yeah. the boat itself, to me anyway, was a spectacular boat.
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting too, the timing of, you know, this documentary coming out because they just splashed a modern day replica of that boat that was actually Wes Wheeler, a descendant of the Wheeler Boat Yard. You know, he was a pivotal player in getting that project done, and it just uh, made its big debut at the Palm Beach Boat Show, and I had a chance to walk through it with Bill Prince. One of our colleagues who's a, a yacht designer and, and he helped design it. And I too have been down to Cuba. It was quite a bit after you. I was there in 2012 and the boat had been restored. Right. But, it, but to see the, to having seen the two, the modern day boat is, it's gorgeous, but it is definitely not a replica. <laughs> it is a modern day interpretation and it's got all these, you know, 21st century touches and it's got, twin yanmar you know 370 horsepower turbos yeah from the water line down it's a different running surface but it just i think really shows that this man's legacy is so massive um, that they would go through this this painstaking project to build this boat because it, it's still uh, it's still the same dimensions i have the specs here it's a 39 foot four inch boat with a 12 foot beam and it's pretty narrow, so this boat's got a sea keeper and all these things. But having seen the original, I don't know. I just thought it was a nice testament, and it was really cool to see the Wheeler name back and getting involved. But it's definitely not the same boat.
0: <laughs> no, the the I had the opportunity to go inside the boat uh, on a second trip to Cuba. Um, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, something like that. And, um, I went inside the boat and it was, uh, you
1: know, the,
0: uh, (laughs) the fighting chair, some people's, uh, it was one of the uh, first fighting chairs ever built. It might have been, it kind of looked like a chair in a dentist office and inside the boat, there was a V berth up forward and on the port side. Now this is down below on the port side, there was a table with two, uh, bench seats on, you know, four and a half. And then, uh, I believe that there was a, an, an enclosed head, uh, between the, uh, on the port side, uh, between the, uh, dinette and the, um, and the V berth. And on the, uh, starboard side, there was a long bench seat. And that was basically it. It was very Spartan, yep. very unlike, uh, Uh, this uh, modern uh, version
1: yeah i actually have a quote here wrote wrote about the boat i'd like to read he said this boat is a marvel for fishing takes any sea comfortable and can turn on her tail to chase fish can literally turn in her own length comfortable to live on board big galley five big beds damned roomy and a wonderful fishing machine with the reduction gear on the big motor, we control 10 hours a day on less than 20 gallons and can speed up to do 16 knots when we need to head a fish. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and yeah. he, he had an interesting engine setup, right? He had a, a main and then a little side yeah. trolling motor.
0: Yeah, he had a, uh, I believe it was a Chrysler, 75 horsepower. That was the main engine. Wow. 75
1: that's a Seventy-five
0: it. horsepower main engine made by Chrysler. And it was a gasoline engine. There were no very uh, I don't know that there were any diesel engines kicking around on boats, uh, recreational boats back then. Uh, somebody would probably proved me wrong on that one, but whatever. Uh, and then he had this wing engine, you know, which is kind of like Nordhavn. You, you, you know, the wing engine on a Nordhavn. Very similar thing. He had that. It was good, really smart, a savvy idea. Actually, he could run the wing engine for trolling and he didn't have to carbon up the main engine to go on slow. It was very uh, smart. He had a lot of there were a lot of great ideas in that boat.
1: Yeah. Well, the fishing, you know, the, the alterations he had them do for fishing were really ahead of his time. So. One thing we've talked a lot about just uh, as we're on our calls for work and stuff is when you look at the side of of the Pilar, he had Wheeler cut down the shear line. So the cockpit is lower to the water and the way they did it, it had a nice soft curve. And if you look at any modern day sport fish, it has the same thing. Mm -hmm. So as far as I know, it was the first boat to do that and he also used outriggers which mm-hmm. were made i believe of bamboo they
0: were made of bamboo yep.
1: yep and the boat in cuba now they they did replicate the outriggers and stuff and he put a second station up top it wasn't like a flybridge you you'd see today it was literally like i believe just a chain kind of cable setup Mm-hmm. With a steering wheel from a Model A or a Model T, you know, like those hot rod mo- steering wheels, a little tiny thing. Yeah. And and he would stand up there to obviously have a better viewing point to spot fish, and then the rolling pin. Tell us about the rolling pin, Bill. That's pretty smart.
0: Basically, this uh, device at the transom. It was. It was. It was uh, a roller or a rolling pin. And if you were pulling a big fish aboard, you could just pull, and the fish would slide along the roller. I mean, that was yeah. uh, that was a great idea. And you know, one thing about that fly bridge, it was supported. There was no stainless steel involved. When you looked at it, it was galvanized pipe. <laughs> wow! I don't know where he got it. I guess uh, Home Depot wasn't around then. But <laughs> no. I mean, it was just you know, galvan plain old galvanized pipe.
1: Just probably yanked it out of a house or something.
0: Whatever works.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, one of, you know, one of the stories you often hear about is, so he had a home in Key West and kept the boat there for a number of years. Uh, the boat was built in 34, so mm-hmm. it was on the heels of the Depression before World War II. And as the war was ramping up, he used the bow as a submarine hunter. And, right. <laughs> and they did talk about that a little bit in the documentary. And how do, you, how do you think it would perform, you know, blasting around at 16 knots trying to track down U-boats?
0: Well, first of all, Charlie, it's a wooden bow. So subject to fire, if, <laughs> if, if not sinking. And then from what I have read... What Ernest had on board that boat for armament was a Thompson submachine gun, which is a rather lethal weapon. But when matched up against a 88 millimeter deck gun on a German sub that fires 15 to 18 rounds per minute. I mean, my take on all that was the man had this really great boat. It was in a really great location. And uh he wanted to go fishing, maybe do a little drinking out there too. I don't know, but that yeah. it was more that was more the idea of it all. I don't think there was much sub hunting going on there.
1: No, I think there was some some long booze cruises and I'm sure those guns got fired plenty. It looks like sure. uh, <laughs> he would fire away at sharks, you know, that was always a, a famous photo and he would talk about that. He was, you know, a really well-known angler. He was one of the founders of the International Game Fish Association. And I believe he was on the board of the IGFA until he passed away. And some of those photos, I just love them. The old black and white photos of him in Bimini or Cuba with marlin and massive sharks and, you know, the old man in the sea. Is probably my favorite Hemingway work, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I got—I got I to admit—I got angry a little bit in the documentary when one of those scholars she called the Old Man in the Sea schoolboy writing, mm-hmm. and I was like, if that's schoolboy writing, then I don't know what I'm doing as a writer because <laughs> its was, it was pretty damn good, you know. Yeah. And it's obviously a story of uh, Santiago, this elderly captain who's on a really bad dry streak he's gone you know 84 days without a fish and so he ventures a little farther out and he hooks that big marlin and he fights this marlin for three days i i don't know what's the longest you've ever fought a fish bill
0: oh man maybe an hour and a half something like that and i there's no way i could go you know, that's extreme.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, a yeah. couple hours and I'm about cut this thing off. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> really? too soft for that.
0: Did somebody help me, please?
1: Yeah. And it's so the, you know, basically the fish tows him way out to sea and then he finally catches it. So spoiler alert if you haven't read this book, but he finally catches it and he's trying to get back to his port and then the sharks come. And he keeps fighting them off and they just keep coming. So I think there's a lot of metaphors and symbolism in there as well, because he's sort of an older guy. But the fish gets taken by the sharks. And Hemingway used to call it, it would get apple cord because all that would be left Mm -hmm. was the head and the spine. Mm -hmm. And there was a line in that book that Hemingway said about Santiago. Um, He said, but man is not made for defeat. A man can be destroyed, but not defeated. And that line always stuck with me. And I I actually kind of ripped it off and used it in my own book. Um, You know, I I published a book a few years ago, also sort of a fishing story. And in my book, there's a chapter where the main character is fighting a swordfish in New Zealand and he fights it for a long time.
0: Hey, Charlie, I've read that book.
1: Oh, I hope you liked it.
0: It's pretty good, Charlie. It's pretty good.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It's called Sucked Dry. The struggle is real. but um, So Parker, the main character, is fighting this swordfish, and then he finally catches it, and he has to decide whether he's going to keep it or let it go. And so here's what Parker said. As I stared at the beast and reflected on its power and fight, I decided to let the animal swim away to release it. This fish taught me what it means to never give up. The fish taught me what it means to set a goal and reach it. That was the object of this trip, and I accomplished my objective. I pulled Billy's knife out of its sheath on his safety belt, reached out toward my catch, and cut the line. This fish could be defeated, but not destroyed. So that was my little homage to old Ernest, I guess. Um, <laughs> but he did, you know, those that, that imagery that he portrayed on the water was always something I found uh, very special. I don't know. What do you think, Bill?
0: Well uh you know the I think his literary legacy is i mean I guess he's been become unpopular in certain corners quarters excuse me uh these days uh but I think it's unqu unquestionable that he uh, was a, a force in American literature. I love the the legacy of that boat, as I mentioned uh in the beginning, that boat was a production boat it was a comparatively simple boat. But it was functional, and it, uh, it was sea kindly. It, uh, it worked well. It did what he wanted it to do. And there's a certain love that grows, I think, between a person who really loves boats and a boat that does its job, that does what it's supposed to do, and all the rest of it. Certainly, we have the technology today is way beyond that boat way beyond that boat but it's almost all that stuff is decoration the functionality of the boat and the sea kindliness of the boat to me are 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 so important and that i think that's you know that's a legacy of pilar
1: yeah he truly loved it and so he had it for about the last 30 years of his life and that's when he was most famous and almost became this other mythical creature you know He had to live up to. And I think that boat gave him the escape. Like he talked about how the ocean looks the same today as it did, Mm -hmm. you know, when man first saw ocean and and Mm -hmm. he would just talk about the Gulf stream. Like it was a trout river. It was really Mm -hmm. cool how he could do that. I don't know of anybody else, maybe Zane gray. He was another, you know, Mm -hmm. really gifted writer and sort of adventure seeker out on the ocean. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is something really beautiful about having a boat that does exactly what you want. That was really well said. And and I will make a quick note that I learned when I was speaking with Wes Wheeler. So there's a couple of these Pilar replicas around.
0: There are, yeah.
1: There's one at Worldwide Sportsman, which is like a Bass Pro in Isle of Murata. Mm-hmm. But that is not a Wheeler. So do not be... Huh. <laughs> he was he pointed that out immediately so i I did not know that charlie he told me i think he said it was a matthews does that name ring a bell
0: yeah matthews was a builder you know one of the other builders back then for sure
1: and they did a beautiful job on that boat and it's still made of wood it's a cold molded boat you know the new boat its name is legend and it's got that uh-huh. black hull why do you think hemingway wanted the black hull just for looks
0: i think Probably just for looks. I think there were black was a kind of popular color for hulls back then. Uh, we've sort of branched out these days. And when you look at the boat, uh, you know, a black hull, as I recall, the bottom paint is red. Uh, and then you have the, you know, the wood, the varnished wood. And then the canvas portion on the coach roof, etc. cetera, I think is green, And when you look at it all, the the red, black, green, it's just it's it's a melange of colors that really go well together. I think, you know, I mean, the man was an artist and he had he was a collector of art Uh, when he when they vacated uh, the Finca. They left a lot of really high priced art. And I'm guessing Castro, you know, it's. (laughs) wound up in Castro's house. Although now I think some of it's been uh, returned to the house, but so he was an artist. So, and he appreciated art. So it may have just been, you know, he, it, it, it was his aesthetic uh, to have that black hole. That'd be my guess anyway.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. And you bring up a really great point in the documentary. They, I can't remember the name of the painter, but he basically said, you know, he wants to paint a picture in his writing, just like this. It was an impressionist painter, but Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. he was very moved by art and his mom was an artistic person. I think she was a opera singer or something. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a lot of connections there and it is a beautiful combination of colors and the style of the boat and, and, in talking with, you know, the folks who built it at Brooklyn Boatyard up in Maine, they actually took like castings of some of these parts that were on the original boat, like mm-hmm. made a mold of them to recreate them exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. So they were very true to those original details. And and it shows it's you got to get on that boat, Bill. We got to go take that thing to Cuba. <laughs>
0: You know what was fun? I think I may have mentioned this to you before, but I guess it was the second time that I was in uh, Cuba uh, a few years ago. I was uh, kind of going through, looking looking the boat over. And uh, the person I was with, I said, uh, hey, would you mind if I, you know, this is, I shouldn't even admit this, I guess, but I said, would you mind if I sat in that fighting chair just for the heck of it? He said, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know if I have felt different after afterwards or not. I mean,
1: it's <laughs> still pretty cool,
0: but it was, I mean, not a lot of people have done that. I go, you know, I got to say, <clears throat>
1: yeah, your butt was right where his butt was. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a great story, and it is a cool house. If anyone, you know, you get the chance to go down there, I would recommend it, to see his writing room up in that tower where, you -hmm. you know, it's got windows all around, and you can see the sea from up there and the hills. It's just, it's a really neat place. You could see why he was inspired
0: uh, to write there. And I think he really loved the uh, Cuban people, too. I mean, there was a, a, he enjoyed life when he could. I mean, yes. it's fairly obvious from his writing. And if there's a group of people that enjoy life, it would be the Cuban people. That's my experience anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, lots of good music and good food and all that yep. fun stuff. Yeah. Um, well, this was fun, Bill. It's great to talk about Hemingway and and the legacy he leaves. And, you know, as we wrap up here, there was one other quote I found that I thought would be a nice way to end our chat here. Sure. So in the words of Ernest Hemingway, he says, now is no time to think of what you do not have. Think of what you can do with what there is. Hard to compete with that.
0: Hard to compete with that, Charlie.
1: <laughs> all right, Bill. Well, thanks for joining me and thanks for listening out there. Make sure to check out all of our podcasts at PMYMag.com. And if you're not already a subscriber to Power Motor Yacht Magazine, please do so. It's a great book, and you can learn lots about all the new boats that are on the water today and some cool boating history, too. That's it. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you on the water.
0: Take care, Charlie. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks again, and until next time, we'll see you on the water.